Let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to the book of Philippians. We're going to be in chapter 1, verses 6 through 11 for the second part of our sermon, or excuse me, the second sermon on this text. Two weeks ago, we began to look at Philippians 1, verses 6 through 11. In that sermon, we learned how the salvation of the Christian is from first to last a work of God. He starts it the day that he gives us a new heart by grace through faith alone. And then he carries us all the way to the finish line. Look at verse 6 again. Paul says, I'm sure of this. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Now in that same sermon, we also saw that although salvation is from first to last a work of God, that does not mean that we should think that we have no work to do, right? We do have work to do. We saw that in in chapter 2. Just turn there with me as we continue our our brief review. Turn over to chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What we see in verse 12 is that we must work in our salvation. We must. This fear and trembling language signifies how significant our effort should be. It's a concerted effort. It's a strenuous effort. It's an emotionally and spiritually taxing effort. And that might lead you to say, well, Sean, what about Reformed theology? To which I would reply, this is Reformed theology. Because Reformed theology is just making sure that what we think about God and ourselves and everything in between is being reformed by the Word of God. And the Word of God says that we work. Now, verse 13. For it is God who works in you. And that for is because. So you work because of this fact. Because of the fact that God works in you both to will and to work his good pleasure. That is, God brings his will to pass through the exertion of your will. And, uh, and we all say, what? We, yeah, we say amen. Yeah, Trevor got it right. Trevor got it right. First we say amen, and then we say what? And some of you came up to me after the sermon last week, and, and you said, okay, I get it. He works He works in our work. I get it. I see it in the text. Can't can't argue with verses 12 through 13. But how does, what are the mechanics of this? To which I reply with Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things of the Lord, excuse me, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. At some level, how all of this works is just sort of beyond us. God doesn't reveal every last little jot and tittle about the finer details of of the mechanics of salvation. Now, having said that, there's a, a the second half to Deuteronomy twenty nine twenty nine reads like this. I'll, I'll just read it all together. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. Okay, category for mystery. We'll, we'll figure it out when we get to heaven. But the things that are revealed belong to us. There's a, there, there's, right? He, we work, he works. Some things are secret, some things are revealed. In this morning's text, I think Paul reveals a little bit about how our work and God's work work together for the sake of our salvation. I don't think, I don't think Paul explains it exhaustively, But if we stop and we just examine the content of of his prayer, I think we'll get 
somewhat of an insight into how these things fit together, looking through a glass darkly. So let me just sort of give you the thesis statement of this morning's sermon, uh, and then we'll dig into it. In verses 9 through 11, Paul prays that God would shape the hearts and minds of the Philippians, shape the hearts and minds of the Philippians, so that they might know and love that which will bear eternal fruit to the glory of God's name. Now, I know that's somewhat verbose, not the pithiest thesis statement, but I was aiming for accuracy more than anything. So if you didn't get all that, and don't worry, that's what we're going to spend the next hour and 45 minutes unpacking together. Amen. Trevor with another well-timed amen. There we go. Come on now. Let me pray, ask for God's help, and then we'll dive in. Lord, we do need your help. Whether we realize it or not, we need your help every second of every day. We need you to sustain us. And we know that your word says that your son, Jesus Christ, is not only the creator, but the sustainer of all things. In him, even at this very moment, all things are being held together by the power of his word. God, we want to enter into that power. We want you to reveal the fullness of your word. We want you to please illuminate the dark caverns of our heart with the bright light of your word. Lord, we cling desperately to the promise that you will finish what you began in our souls. But we also understand that one of the ways that you bring these things to completion is through our diligent study of your word, empowered by your Holy Spirit. So we study, Lord, we're going to think on these things, and we pray that you will give us the understanding that we need to follow you faithfully all the way home. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. I've got five points for you this morning. Point number one. <coughs> Paul's prayer. Paul's prayer. In point number one, we're going to do some preemptory work. Before we actually get into the content of what Paul is praying, we're going to sort of pause, we're going to step back, and we're going to ask ourselves, why does Paul feel like it's necessary to tell the Philippians that he's praying for them? Right? He didn't have to do that. He could have just prayed for them. He's he's writing on parchment. You know, space is valuable. Why does he make it a point right here at the very beginning of his letter to say, I want you to know that I am praying these things for you? I can think of at least four reasons. Reason number one, it encourages them. It encourages them. When you're a Christian and you know that someone is praying for you, you, you just, you feel loved, you feel cared for, you know, oh man, I'm on their mind, they're thinking about me. You know that you matter, that, that, that this person cares for your soul. That's one level of encouragement, and that's, that's important, right? Just, it's nice to, to feel cared for. But there's a much deeper level of encouragement, I think, that we should draw from this reality. The greatest encouragement, I think, comes from the fact that God does, in fact, hear the prayers of his people, and he does, in fact, move on behalf of those prayers for the sake of his people. The book of James says in chapter 5, verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person has great power. When we think about our brothers and sisters in Christ praying for us, we know that they are equipped with the righteousness of Christ. The Holy Spirit is living in them, moving them, causing them, putting us onto their hearts and minds so that they would take our needs before the throne room of our God. Saints pray for other saints. In contrast to the Roman Catholics who believe that we should pray to the dead and gone saints, we believe that the saints should pray for one another while we are still alive, knowing that God hears our prayers 
And that when our prayers are in line with his will, and that's exactly what we see here with Paul, right? My prayer is that your love and knowledge may abound more and more. My prayer is that you may approve what is excellent. That's praying in God's will. We know that when we pray that will over the lives of our brothers and sisters, that God delights to answer those prayers. If you say, oh, God, I pray that my brother Michael Wall would grow in his knowledge of your love. You think God's up there like, eh, no. No, he delights to answer those prayers. So just to keep using Michael Wall as an example, raise your hand if you have gotten a text at 530 in the morning. I don't even have to finish. Here's, I just went through my recent text messages from Michael. Here, here's the last one I got from him. I prayed for you this morning from 1 Samuel chapter 12, verse 19. So he's reading God's word, trying to discern God's will. That Jesus will be your true king, providing for all of your needs and protection and holding absolute authority over your heart. When you get a text message like that, how can you not be encouraged? You know that you're loved and cared for. You know that you have a brother or sister in Christ going to the throne room of God on your behalf. And you know, most importantly, that God hears that prayer. And that he delights to answer that kind of prayer. And you know, you should know anyways, that that prayer may lead to an increase in your sanctification. How can you not be encouraged? Even this morning, I got a text message from a local pastor who told me that he and his congregation had prayed for us in this congregation. He showed me a slide that they have up on their uh, projector with three different things that they prayed for for our local church. They prayed for it this morning in their first service. Hundreds of people, Christians, praying to God on our behalf. How can we not be encouraged? Another Another reason why Paul tells them that he's praying for them, the second reason is that it instructs them. When Paul shares the contents of his prayers with the church, he's teaching them how to pray by example, right? So if Paul were present with the Philippians, if he were there with them and not in chains, he would be able to role model what it looks like to pray, right? Because, you know, listen, these brand new Christians, they, they don't know how to talk to God. The disciples, after walking with Jesus, went to him and they were like, hey, we don't know how to pray. Can you teach us, right? How many times have you been praying with someone, and it's very obvious they just don't know how to talk to God, you know? They're just talking about their Aunt Sally's bad hip, you know, uh, safe travel plans, a lot of Lord Godding, but they don't really know how to talk to the Father, right? There's a way in which you can teach people to pray, not even by saying, hey, instead of saying that, say this. You just pray differently in front of them, right? That's what we see Paul doing here. He's teaching them how to pray by way of his example. And I want you to know that in our Sunday morning services, the same thing is true. These prayers are designed to teach us as a church to be able to pray the way that Scripture teaches us to pray, to use the different kind of languages in prayer that Scripture offers us, the language of lament, the language of confession, the language of prayer and adoration and thanksgiving and petition. All of that is on purpose. So... Just, I want to encourage you to pay extra close attention. Like, what do we pray on a Sunday morning? Why do we pray what we pray? Why do we pray what we pray when we pray it? Why do we pray how long we pray? Sometimes uh, that's not exactly intentional. But the language of our prayers even. Listen to the things that we don't pray about. Listen to the language that we don't use. Listen to the things that don't make its way into our, uh, that don't make their way into our corporate communication with God. It's all intended to instruct. So point number three, Paul says, uh, I think that, excuse me, that Paul tells them that he prays for them because it inspires them to pray. This one's real short and sweet. When I'm around people who are prayerful, it just drives me to pray more. You know, I think about my friend James Alexander, who used to be in this church many years ago. When I spent like two weeks around this brother, I was just convicted that I didn't pray enough, and I just started praying a lot more, right? Think about the powerful impact of a praying friend, a praying pastor, a praying grandmother, a praying spouse, even praying children, 
right? You're tired, you want to go to bed, you don't want to do devotionals, and your kids go, we got to pray before bed, right? You're like, yeah, no, that's right. <laughs> it inspires them. Oh, he's praying for me? I mean, think about it. Whenever I text someone and say, hey, how can I be praying for you? You know what they always text back? X, Y, Z, and how can I be praying for you, right? There's just something there. It feels like we got to reciprocate. It just moves us to talk to God together. Another reason why Paul tells them that he prays for them, subpoint number four, is because it role models humility. Or you could put it role models a dependence on God in all things. And this prayer specifically, Paul is teaching the Philippians that there is <coughs> there's something they need to do in order to be fruitful. And this thing that they need to do, increasing in love and knowledge, is not something that they can just do for themselves. So Paul goes to God on their behalf and asks God to do it for them, right? And so one of the things I think you'll see when you, when, you, when you encounter a prayerful, humble Christian is that they just realize that they need God's help for everything. It's like, you know, some people just live their whole lives, even, even Christians, professing Christians, and God only shows up in the emergencies. But when someone's dependent on God in all things, they're just constantly praying. Before they get out of bed in the morning, they're like, all right, I got a lot I need to do today, and and without God's help, I'm not going to be able to do it. I think about the example of Grant Miller when he first began this process of church revitalization. I was talking to Teresa Phillips one day about those elder meetings in the early days before I got here. And she said, you know, one of the things that started to change was that Grant led us into deep and serious prayer during our elders meetings. We began to pray like we had never prayed before. Now, I was having conversations privately with Grant Miller about this process of church revitalization that he was beginning. And you know what was coming off of him in every conversation? Helplessness, right? Utter dependence on God, humility. He was setting out to do something that felt impossible, so he was just constantly praying to God. And that made its way all the way into the elders' meetings of the church. So if you feel helpless and dependent on God, talk to God more. And role model that by telling other people that you're praying for them. Now, let me give you one application point here uh, to sort of wrap all of this up, bring it all together. It's really profound, okay? You ready? Note takers? Let's do this. Let's tell people when we're praying for them, our brothers and sisters in Christ primarily, but not even that. I mean, if you've ever been out to, to lunch or to dinner with me, you'll see that one of the things that I do is I'll stop and ask our waiter or waitress if I can pray for them as we pray for our food. My intention there is not to seem holier than thou. I genuinely want them to know. I think in telling them that I'm going to pray for them, I'm accomplishing all four of these things. I'm trying to put a burr under their saddle. I'm trying to open up a gospel door. But even if you don't do that with unbelievers... I think you should, you should definitely try to get in the habit of telling your brothers and sisters in Christ when you pray for them. I know it feels kind of weird at first. You think, you think, oh, what if they think I'm being self-righteous, right? What if they think I'm just trying to appear holier than thou? And listen, I get it. Maybe you come from a church background that's very performance-based, where, where prayer is kind of of that variety, but just think about our local church. Do you think people are going to think that about you? I don't think so. I think, I think doing this is just part of our DNA, you know? So even if they do think the wrong thing about you, it's important to know that your obedience is before the Lord, not before the face of people who might misunderstand you. So just do what you see in Scripture and sort of let the Lord sort everything else out. When you pray for missionaries... Text them, email them, FaceTime them, let them know. When you pray for your pastor, oh, you have no idea how many times the pastors of this church have been encouraged by a well-timed text message. You have no idea. They're going through turmoil. They're struggling. They're battling. And you send them a text message and said, I just want you to know that I've been thanking God for you this week. And then the pastors are like, second wind, let's go. Okay, I'm back on track, you know. 
Tell your fellow church members. You just never know what the Lord might do with that. Tell your neighbors, friends, and co-workers, and tell the waitress at Chili's. Okay, let's go into point two where we're going to actually get into the content of Paul's prayer. Uh, the title for point two is The Chain of Causation. The Chain of Causation. So in verse 11, we see that the aim of Paul's prayer is that the, the Philippians would be filled with the fruit of righteousness on the last day. Look, look there with me. <clears throat> he says that you will be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Now, let me be clear about something right, right here uh, at the beginning, right up front. This is, not, this is not just Paul's hope for the Philippian Christians, that they would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. This is in the Bible because what God wants for you and for all Christians is to be filled with the fruit of of righteousness. He wants us all in the last day to be filled with this fruit. Now we're going to talk about more we're going to talk more about what this fruit is here in a minute. But what I want you to see right here in point 2 is I want you to see that there is a chain of causation in Paul's mind as we move from love and knowledge to approving what is excellent to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I'm going to tell you you may be wondering, Sean, why didn't we read the scripture? together this morning like we usually do before the sermon starts because I, I want to explain this chain of causation to you and then I want us to go back and read it all together so that you can actually see it so what Paul wants is for first of all for God to to fill the Philippians with an increase of love and knowledge that's chain number one or link number one then as they increase their love and knowledge they will be able to Number two, approve what is excellent. And then after they're capable of approving what is excellent, they will, number three, be filled with the fruit of righteousness. Think about it kind of like a watch, maybe like a wristwatch, right? You have a battery which powers gears that turn, which then move the hands, right? All part of a seamless chain. Let's go back. And let's just start in verse 9. It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. That's number one. So that you may approve what is excellent. Number two. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness. That is number three. It might seem strange to you that God is the one who needs to do the first thing there, like increase your love and knowledge, but it, it really shouldn't seem strange. Uh, humans, when left to ourselves, we're kind of like a, a car on the highway, unless you have like perfect alignment, which almost none of us do, right? You take your hands off the wheel, you're going to veer, right? Left to our own devices, Christians are always going to veer away from holiness, away from God, away from righteousness, and into sin. That's why the Holy Spirit needs to indwell us, to keep us from veering off one side or the other. And, and Scripture is just fraught with language about God needing to be the one to increase these things that keep us. So turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 14. I just want you to see this elsewhere. So right off the bat, I want you to see that Paul is doing the same thing. Paul is telling the Ephesians that he's praying for them in the same way that he told the Philippians about his prayers. So Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you, right? He may grant you. He has to do this. He has to grant it. You can't do it. He has to do it. To be strengthened with power through his spirit. So how does he do it? Here are some of the mechanics, right? 
His Spirit living in you channels it. His Holy Spirit is the conduit of every good thing that God is doing in your life through His Son, Jesus Christ. Okay, so through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend. Now, that's knowledge language, right? You need to be able to comprehend something of God, and guess what? Left to your own devices, you will not be able to comprehend it. You need God by His Spirit to give you the ability to comprehend it. Okay, well, what do you need to comprehend? With all the saints, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know, that's knowledge again, the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, so that you may be filled. That's the language from, a, uh, from Philippians 1. So that you may be filled with the fullness of of God. So I just want you to see here that this is a, the same pattern. We could go to three other different places in Scripture that I just deleted out of my notes because it would have taken us too long. Where this, this ability to know and to love God the way that we should is something that God has to do in us by His Spirit. You guys with me? Good. So now that we see kind of how some of these gears fit together, let's go back to the beginning and dig into the specifics. Point number three. Head and heart. <clears throat> the human body is in a constant state of homeostasis. Uh, to be in homeostasis simply means to, to balance things, right? So, for example, your endocrine system. It, it is designed and finely tuned by God to strike just the right balance of various hormones in your body so that you have optimal emotional and bodily health. So let me just give you an example of this. You have testosterone and estrogen in your body, and, and, and those things need to be properly balanced. It's going to be different for men and women, but they need to be properly balanced for you to have health. Okay, You need to have homeostasis between those two. In the same way, there is a kind of spiritual homeostasis for the Christian. That is, Christians must maintain the appropriate balance between love and knowledge. Right? This point is titled Head and Heart because our love and knowledge, both of which Paul says we need to grow in, that's what the prayer begins with in verse 9, they need to grow together. They have to grow together. Now, when I use the word increase here, right, I'm using that because that is the aim for the Christian. In, in verse 9, Paul says that these things should abound more and more. The goal for the Christian is to not get to some baseline level of love and knowledge and then just sort of coast all the way to heaven, right? We're not shooting for an average. We're shooting to go higher and higher, deeper and de deeper. We want to push those numbers up every single day until we go to be with the Lord. Now, if you push your body's hormone levels up too high, you're going to end up with all kinds of problems, but you can never have too much love and too much knowledge. Where we get into an issue, where, where the problems begin to arise for the Christian, is when our love and knowledge do not increase with equilibrium. When, when they're not balanced when one begins to exceed the other. Uh, let me just give you a couple of verses uh, right here in, in the book of Philippians just to show you that these, these two things need to increase together. Just flip over to Philippians chapter 2, verse 2. <clears throat> Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do you see that? The mind and the love paired together. You can just go back to Philippians 1. Look at Philippians 1 verses 16 and 17. Paul here is speaking about people who are preaching Christ out of 
false motives. He says the latter do it out of, uh, excuse me, but first he begins with those who uh, preach Christ for the right reason. But notice the pairing. The latter do it out of love, that's heart, knowing, that's head, that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, now towards those who do it for impure motives. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely. This language of sincerity, that's the language of the heart. But thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Head and heart, knowledge and love, always bound together. That is how God has designed human beings to function. In Romans 1, for example, we're told that the unregenerate man, that is the man who has a heart of stone... Right? We're told that his mind is hostile to God. Right, The heart is bad and the mind goes with it. It maintains a sort of evil homeostasis, descending deeper and deeper into the pit of sin. Now, none of this means that Christians never experience any sort of lag time as we're pursuing knowledge and love together. As a matter of fact, we almost always do experience some semblance of lag as one or the other of these two attributes increases. So let me just give you an example. Sometimes we learn about a new doctrine, and we honestly just don't like it. Have you ever been there? Right? You leave a Bible study, and you're like, what the heck was that? Right? Like, I remember one time I finished a Bible study, and I threw my Bible across the room. Not recommended. But that's what happens. This, these two sermons have been basically about the doctrines of grace. And all of us have at various points have had to wrestle through that. And what most of the time I hear happens with that is as we wrestle with these doctrines, we just, we don't like it. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem fair. We come to clearly see it in scripture, but then we find ourselves like Job. And like Paul's imaginary interlocutor in Romans 9, we find ourselves going... Well, this doesn't seem fair. If that's what grace is, I don't want to have anything to do with it. But then when you persist in the truth, when you keep studying, when you keep digging, when you keep growing, you come to see that there's actually something more glorious than your initial objections, and your heart begins to catch up. Your heart and mind achieve homeostasis. And maybe for you, Reformed theology wasn't difficult at all. Maybe for you, it was the doctrine of hell. Or what God has to say about biblical manhood and womanhood. We all go through it. Now, for our particular context, I need to make sure that we press into a... I need to make sure we press into our potential blind spot, right? In this church, the Bible church, the doctrine church, the theology church, right? And all those things are good. But in this church, we need to make sure that we don't grow in truth to the neglect of love. There are other churches where it's the exact opposite, right? You guys are focused so much on love that you are very much in danger of loving outside of truth, which is not love at all. But in this church, we are so good about truth that we may begin to forget that truth is ultimately in service of love. We may begin to forget that truth without love is in fact Worthless and nothing at all. Paul makes this point to the Corinthians who seemed to be obsessed with truth to the neglect of love. And he says, if I have prophetic powers, if I understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. Let's not forget, brothers and sisters, members of Sixth Avenue, if we do not have love, if our hearts are not keeping up with our minds, if our actions and our deeds, our, our good works are not keeping up with our theology, we have nothing. Point number four, approving what is excellent. <clears throat> I like to tell people that I am all show and no go. I look somewhat athletic, but I'm actually very unathletic. I have little functionality next to no coordination. Maybe you've seen furniture like that. This is what comes to mind when I think of Ikea, right? I'm like, oh, that looks great on the showroom. And then I sit down on it literally instantly in pain. The least comfortable piece of furniture I've ever seen. Aesthetically, oh, very pleasing, beautiful, but just 
all show and no go. We're often, or we feel like we're often forced to choose between that which is functional and that which is beautiful, but not in this morning's text. As God increases our love and our knowledge, it is not just for show. It serves a purpose. It has a function. As God shapes and molds our hearts and minds, he's doing that in us so that we might do something with our new formed hearts and minds. So what does God want us to do with this formation? Well, the text says he wants us to approve what is excellent. Now, when you hear the word approve, you might be tempted to think in a merely rational manner, like somebody working at a factory, the widgets come across, I have to approve and discard any that aren't very good, right? Or perhaps you might be thinking more on an emotional level, right? Approve is is me just saying that which feels good to me, that, that which feels right. I remember having a conversation with a former church member, and as I was trying to reason from Scripture, this former church member just kept saying to me, you know, I just feel like what you're saying isn't, I just feel like it's not right, right? But, but this juxtaposition, feelings, knowing, right, intellectual ra- ra- rationality, it's a false juxtaposition. It doesn't need, it's not either or, it's both and. When Paul uses this word, when he says that we must approve what is excellent, and this could be in relation to a, a church, a teaching, a person, a tradition, we are, we are not simply trying to deduce that which is true or false or right or wrong or bad or good or righteous or evil. We are also assessing whether we should delight in this thing or despise it, right? Whether we should rejoice in it or be repulsed by it, right? We're we're trying to deal in matters of the head and the heart. So when we approve that which is excellent, which by way of implication means that we disprove that which is not excellent, whenever we do this, we are employing the full faculties of our increased love and knowledge. Jonathan Edwards had a very useful illustration when talking about this. He would say, there is a difference between having a rational judgment that honey is sweet and having a sense of its sweetness. So when Paul says, I'm asking God to increase your love and knowledge, head and heart, so that you can approve approve what is excellent, he's telling us that our approving what is excellent is a matter of the heart and the head. It's a matter of logic and affection. So, when someone says, I believe what the Bible says about hell, but I don't have to like it, the answer is wrong. Wrong. You, you do need to like it. And, if, and you not only like it, you should love it. And if you don't love the doctrine of hell, that means that you probably don't understand it. At least not the way that you should. Because God's not ashamed of the doctrine of hell. God doesn't dislike the doctrine of hell. He created hell for a reason that is glorious to him and that he deeply enjoys. Even though at some level he is also grieved by the reality of sin and death and lostness. You might say, I don't agree with everything that preacher says, but I just love the way he makes me feel. I just leave his sermons feeling a way that I... No. No. A man visited a tribe in Africa, heard one of their songs that they were singing, song, dance, the whole village was together. Uh, He just, he began to weep. He says, it's one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. Oh, he asked one of the interpreters, what are they singing? He said, it's a song about killing coyotes. Uh, No, not coyotes, hyenas, you know. Our our affections, our, our emotions are not infallible guides. We need head and heart, to be working together to approve what is excellent. Now, we need to put a finer point on this concept. We have to approve that which is excellent. Now, whenever Scripture speaks of excellence, it typically is referring to the highest order of good. 
right? It's not just trying to get us to think in, in categories of right and wrong, bad and good, evil and righteous. It's trying to help us, although those are valid categories. That's kind of like, like stage one discernment, right? But it's also trying to get us to aim at a higher level of discernment. Well, let me just show you what I mean. In, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul tells the Philippians, excuse me, the Corinthians, who are obsessed with gifts. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, and I will show you a still more excellent way. It's more excellent. They're discerning things in a way that is not maximally excellent. And he's going to show them a better way. He's going to help them not just have good and bad categories when it comes to spiritual gifts, but bad, good, better, best. Right? Hebrews chapter 1-4. Having become as much, speaking of Jesus, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs, right? So excellent is synonymous with superior. Is the name of the angels a bad name? No. The angels aren't bad, but Jesus is superior, like <laughs> infinitely superior, right? But the point here is that it's a question of degree. Later in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 6, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better since it is enacted on better promises. Now, in this verse, you see that the word excellent is synonymous with better. The old covenant was not bad. It was not wrong. It was not false. But the new covenant is better. The old covenant was good. The new covenant is better. You guys see? So, here's, here's where this comes home to you. God is, is sharpening the tools of discernment in you, even today, right now, as you listen to this sermon. He has already, whether you've known it or not, Christian, been increasing your love, increasing your knowledge, and giving you all of the raw material you need to be able to approve what is excellent, so that you can have a, a high level of discernment, so you don't just walk through life going, on, off, right, wrong, faithful, not faithful, right? So that you actually have categories within categories. To, and this is also speaking not just of the good, but of the evil, right? If you just, if you just say, oh, that's all evil. Well, well, no, there are categories. When Jesus speaks of sin, although all sin is rebellion against God, there are, there's a difference between stealing a piece of gum at the grocery store and being a pedophile. Right? You have to know the difference between that which is least bad to that which is most repulsive and evil in the eyes of the Lord, and then operate accordingly. Now, uh, an existential word regarding this practice of discernment. Uh, what is this going to look like for you experientially in your heart? It's going to be exhausting. I, I just want to keep it real with you, you know? It's exhausting. It's going to be hard. You're going to feel like, I wish I didn't have to think so carefully about everything all the time. I wish I could just go through life and just, just operate in binaries, you know? Ignorance is bliss. I remember taking my, my uh, final exam to be a paramedic in the Army. In those, the, the exam there, they give you a question and then five multiple choice answers. And then there's, so in those five, there's a wrong answer. There's a right answer, and then there are three almost right answers. And you have to figure out what is the most right answer. What's not good, not better, what's the best answer? Those kinds of tests are exhausting. right? And that's what our life can be like in this fallen world. So let me just give you some examples. <clears throat> Given uh, our family's finances... Context, schooling options, the varying levels of spiritual health between mom and dad, my current understanding of Christian education, my family's educational circumstances and needs, what is the best way to give my children a Christ-centered education? Not just the good enough way, what's the most excellent way? Should I 
homeschool? Should I public school? Should I private school? Should I do a hybrid? And if we do do a hybrid, should we join a co-op? And if so, which co-op should I join? This Latin-named co-op or this Latin word-named co-op, right? It can just be overwhelming, right? Amber comes and talks to me about the curriculum, and we got to change this math thing because of this thing and that thing. I'm just like, I don't care. But that's not the right answer. Which candidate should you support in the next election cycle? This bad candidate or that bad candidate? Or maybe you want to support the third party bad candidate. Who's voting for Gary Johnson, right? Or should I even vote at all? Or should I write in a name? What is the most excellent way to love my neighbor through the mechanism of politics in a free and democratic society? What church should we join? The one that's closer and has a youth program that our kids really love, even though they're kind of squishy on the gospel? Or the church that's further away has no programs whatsoever that my kids aren't particularly excited about, but that preaches the word more faithfully, even though I still don't agree with everything that they say. And we could just multiply this list. Discernment can be exhausting. And it never stops. It must never stop until we go home to be with Jesus. We must examine all things through the lens of biblical discernment. We must take every thought captive. Are you discouraged yet? Man, Sean preached the most discouraging sermon I've ever heard today. I just walked out of there feeling exhausted and like I was never going to get it right. I don't think we should, be we should be discouraged here. I think we should just feel the weight of the challenge. And, and hopefully the spirit of God living in you causes you to rise up to meet that challenge. We wrestle with these things not because we have to, not because we're forced to, but because we want to. Do you realize that you're all here voluntarily this morning? You weren't forced to be here you weren't bribed to be here. You chose to be here. Why? This is the harder path. Because there's something in you, someone in you, that moves you along the narrow, treacherous, difficult path of faithfulness to Jesus Christ. You rise up and say, even though it's hard, I know it's good. I know that, that when I think like this, when I live my life like this, God will get the most glory I will be most satisfied and the gospel will be most clearly perceived by a lost and dying world. So press on, brothers and sisters. Press on finding that which is most true, most beautiful, and most good. Point number five. The righteousness of Christ. Now this is the last point of the sermon, but let me... Let me encourage you to try to get your second wind here. Try to snap back into focus because I, I think this is the most important point of the sermon. I think if you misunderstand verse 11 as so many Christians have, you, you, you may very well end up misunderstanding the gospel. So, in, in verse 10, Paul says that he wants us to be found pure and blameless. Then in verse 11, he says that he wants us to be filled with the fruit of righteousness. I understand these two things to be mere images of one another, right? You're not going to be filled with impurity, rather you are going to be filled with righteousness. Do you see that? Okay. Now, some will read these verses and say that the Bible teaches that we can become so discerning that we eventually arrive at a place of sinless perfection. This is not a joke. Entire denominations propagate this doctrine, right? They say, we can't, look, look what he says. We can be found pure and blameless. We can be perfect on the last day. Well, this is where it's helpful to remember one of the tools of rightly interpreting our Bibles, one of the number one tools of hermeneutics, is to always let texts that are less clear be interpreted by texts that are more clear, especially as they're from the same author in the same book. 
So if we just stay right here in the book of Philippians, we can see that that's emphatically not what Paul means. He is not referring to being found in a state of our own perfection on the last day. Just turn to chapter 3 with me. Chapter 3, verse 12. Paul, at the very end of his life, says, Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Right? What we see here is that the Apostle Paul, you know, if you look at his spiritual resume, most of us, we we will not get there. And yet at the end of his life, he says, Guys, I haven't arrived. I'm not perfect. I'm striving towards that end because I trust that God's working in me, and that's what I want in life, but I know that I haven't arrived. And just go a few verses down, still in chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Paul is addressing his hope on the final day. He says that he wants to gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So unless Paul is contradicting himself at several points in his own letter, which seems unlikely, this pure and blameless language from verse 10, the fruit of righteousness language from verse 11, must mean something else other than arriving at a state of sinless perfection. So what does it mean? I think the answer is found in two different places. First, just consider the word filled from verse 11, right? Paul says that we will be filled with the fruit of righteousness. What does that mean? What does it mean to be filled? Well, Paul uses that word elsewhere. Turn back to Ephesians 3 with me. So Paul has been praying these things for the Philippians, excuse me, for the Ephesians. And he says that one of the things he's praying for them is that they will know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now he's speaking to Christians who are already indwelt by the Holy Spirit. God is already living in them. He told them in chapter 1 that they have been sealed by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Nevertheless, here in chapter 3, he tells us that one of the things he wants for them is to not just have a mere presence of God, but that he wants God to fill them to the utmost. He wants them to have more of that which they already possess. We're building a case here. More of what they already possess. Take that back to Philippians 1. Because of the work of justification, which is just God declaring us innocent, the Philippian Christians are already pure and blameless. That's what happens as soon as you repent of your sins and believe in Christ. All of your sins are cast into the ocean of forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, they are already pure and blameless because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, which leads us to the next thing in Philippians 1. He says that he prays that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. They already have righteousness. That's what happens when you get saved. When you're declared innocent, God imputes, that is, he transfers, like money from one bank account to another, he transfers the righteousness of his son's perfectly obedient life to your account. So the Philippians are already righteous. And yet, Paul says, I pray that they would be filled with the fruits of righteousness. That word fruit there, it's the language of evidence in Scripture, right? Jesus says you will know a tree by its fruit. If the root is bad, the fruit will be bad. If the root is good, the fruit will be good. Paul says there is a a righteousness that already lives in you, Philippians, And what I want for you on the last day is to be found so full of the evidence of that righteousness that it will be glorious. We're going to come back to that glory here in a minute. 
we, brothers and sisters, should abound in the fruit of righteousness. We should live our lives in such a way as to be constantly trying to display the evidence of the righteousness that lives in us. Constantly trying to be holy that demonstrates the holiness that is already ours by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we can do that. We can choose humility over pride. By God's grace and with his help, we can choose to serve the poor over filling up our bank accounts. We can choose to treat all the members of the body of Christ with equal dignity and honor. We can choose to fear God more than we fear men. We can do all of this and give evidence, bear fruit of the reality of the righteousness that is already in us. This, this language of being found on the last day with fruit, it's the language of offering. It's the language of offering. On the last day, what God wants from us is to bring this free will love offering of abounding fruit to him so that he will receive maximum praise and glory. Now, I, I taught on this lesson many years ago. I, I taught on these verses at a church, and uh, some people came up to me afterwards. Actually, it was just a, a couple. And the, the, the husband said, okay, I get it, Sean. And, um, you know, I know that we don't get any credit for our salvation, but don't we get some kind of reward for living lives of righteousness? And to which I replied, of course. You get all kinds of rewards, actually. First of all, you get the reward of righteousness. Holiness. That is a reward in and of itself. If nothing else ever happened, if you didn't receive anything else, these things are gifts in themselves. But I also think that this is where heavenly rewards come into play. I'm not going to give a, a whole other sub-point on that. But let me, just, let me just tell you, even our heavenly rewards... Right, which are rewarded to us for works of righteousness that we do here on earth. D does that make sense? Even those rewards that we get for what we did here on earth, even those rewards are all of grace. Let me show you what I mean. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. We read this to begin our, our time together this morning. You can split these verses into two different sections if you wanted to. The first section is just talking about salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. That's clear, right? It's abundantly clear. When enemies of the gospel come preaching a works-based righteousness, a works-based salvation, I just, this is just the first place I go to. It's so clear. But he doesn't stop at salvation. He moves on to address how we live the Christian life. He says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. He did all of this work to save you so that you would then do good works. Are you seeing the logic? Which God prepared beforehand. It's not like he just sort of spun the top and then let you go, you know, rev the engine and then pulled the brake off, right? No, even the good works that you do as a result of the good work of salvation is something that he already worked out. I'm saying the word work a lot. I can't help it. It's in the text. There is not one single thing you can do that will be considered a good work that you'll receive a reward for in heaven that you can say, I take credit for that. You can't. Why would you? Paul says here that everything is a result of faith and grace, not works, so that no one may boast. Why would you want to boast over God? Why would you want to take credit for something? Do you, do you understand how foolish and vain and prideful it is to think that you can take credit for something that God prepared, not just the day before you were born, but in eternity's past? Before he created anyone, the heavens and the earth, Adam and Eve, he, de he decided that he was going to make you 
And he was going to cause you to walk in these paths. He prepared these works for you. And then here you come along and you just stumble into it. And you do them and then you go, man, I'm pretty awesome. All, you know, all glory be to Sean because he's do. No. Even the good works that we do in this life that, that abound in the fruit of righteousness that cause us to receive the rewards of heaven, God gets all the glory for these, and we get none. And we shouldn't want to have it any other way. If you hear that and you feel a little tinge of frustration and anger, there's something living in you that is so dangerous. And I know that because it lives in me. It's the reason why when I tell a story, I always find somehow, some way to make myself the hero. It's the reason why I sometimes try to find a way to take credit for something that I deserve no credit for. There's something living in me. It's called sin. And my sin causes me to try to steal from God that which he alone deserves. All the credit, all the glory, all the honor, and all the praise. That's the point of this verse. If you just go back to Philippians, just look at the very end of verse 11. The, the reason why we want to be filled with the fruit of this righteousness, this evidence of the righteousness of Christ that lives in us, is so that it would be to the glory and praise of God. So if you think that there's something you do that deserves praise for you, you've, you've just sort of misunderstood the whole thing. The desire to steal glory from God is a capital offense. We deserve death and hell forever for thinking that we can ever steal glory from the glorious one, the only glorious one. And this is what is so amazing about the gospel is that Jesus sacrificed his glory and he entered into our lack of glory so that we might be changed and that sin of trying to steal his glory so that we might be forgiven of that. And not only forgiven, but then transformed so that we become people who just want our whole lives to be about deflecting glory away from ourselves and just giving it back to God. Now, there's a very carnal, unchristian way to do this. Someone comes up and says, brother, I was really encouraged by uh, the way you shared in that small group. And you just go, oh, all glory to God. Right? Do you, but you don't mean that. You're just doing that just... That's another just different way of you trying to get glory for yourself. But there's a way from the heart that we can live like this that evidences this change in our lives. And I, in closing, I want you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 4 because I think, I think that change is what we see in the Apostle Paul in his ministry. Paul doesn't write about discernment uh, devoid of experience. He's not writing out of a, a place of emptiness, a vacuum in his heart and life. He's writing from a place of experience, starting in verse 3. <coughs> Paul says, if anyone thinks he has any reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish. And that is a very polite rendering of that word. It is trash. It is dung. In order. Why? Why has he done this? That I might gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. That's trash. But that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Why? Because that righteousness is the only righteousness that gives God glory. Am I in the wrong chapter? Yes. You guys figured it out? Yes. Don't even worry about it. I'm just going to preach. You're going to come along with me. 
that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is the highest level of discernment. Paul came to see that Jesus is the excellent. He had spent his whole life pursuing what he thought was good, pursuing what he thought was better. And then in an instant, he saw Christ in his glory. And what he saw there turned everything else that he thought was good into trash. Everything that he thought was better into dung. He came into contact with the Most High, He who is to the nth degree, the utmost, the superlative. And that completely changed the way he discerned the world, his life, his accomplishments, his achievements. And when you come to see Jesus for who he truly is and what he has done for us in love, your discernment will do the same thing. You will begin to see everything else, else in this life as worthless. You will, not because you're being forced to, but because you want to, you will freely abandon every good and better thing as you pursue him who is the most excellent. That's my prayer for us. That's my prayer for me, for the elders of this church, for the members of this church. That's my prayer for the nations. Let's go to God now and ask him to do what only he can do. Let's pray. Father God, left to our own devices, we will all be glory thieves. We will be filled with the fruit of unrighteousness, the fruit of the flesh. This will give you no honor, no glory, no praise. It will only bring wrath down on our heads. And so we praise you, God, that you made a way for us to see things clearly, to see you clearly, to know you and to love you, to see you and to savor you, to know you with our heads and our hearts, to be in relationship with you. Father, even now we feel a dissonance. At some level we experience this. At another level we feel disconnected and far away from you. And we are stumbling home to heaven. But we rejoice with deep and serious joy to know that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion for the glory of his name alone at the day of Christ Jesus. Amen.